We're going to be in the third chapter, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, wrath of God is coming. In these you too once all walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we wait for you today. We wait for you to speak to us through your word, for this is on what we rely. And Father, would you satisfy our souls today with the gospel of the Lord Jesus from your word as we look to you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my inheritance that is coming to me. And so the father divided his possessions and property between his two sons. A few days later, the younger son left home, gathered everything that he had, and set out on a trip. He went far, far away from home, and he squandered everything that he had on reckless living. And when he was broke, a severe famine took over the place where he was, and he found himself in great need. And so he hired himself out to a farmer who enlisted him to go into his fields and feed his pigs. And he was so hungry that he craved the pods of what was being fed to the pigs. But no one gave him anything. And so in a moment of clarity, he thought to himself, my father's servants have more than enough bread to eat. And here I am, dying of hunger. I'm going to get up and go home, and I'm going to tell my father, 
that I am no longer worthy to be called a son. I have sinned against him and against heaven. And I'm okay with that. And that he can just treat me like one of his servants. So he got up and he went home to his father. But while he was still far off from home, his father saw him. And he had compassion. And his father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. The son told him what he had prepared to say and that he was no longer worthy to be called a son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe that we have and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. For this, my beloved son has come home. He was lost and is found. He was dead and he is alive again. And they had a big celebration. The story found in Luke 15 that Jesus tells his followers, it goes on to talk about the older brother as well. But for our illustrative purposes today, I want to stop there and focus on the interactions between the younger son and the father. Did you notice the first thing that the father did? After welcoming his son home, embracing him and kissing him, the very first directive that he gave to his servants, he immediately called out for a new set of clothes, a ring, and new shoes. The best that they had, and then he ordered a feast to ensue. There was no lecture about personal responsibility, no reprimand that since he blew his part of the inheritance that he was going to have to spend years working it off, no sense of taking him in on a trial basis to see how it might work out, but instead, a brand new outfit. What was that about? Why clothes? Well, the son went away as a wealthy landowner's son. No doubt he left home in beautiful clothes, fine jewelry, and a smart pair of shoes. The best outfit that money could buy. But now, after hawking it all and wasting the money, he returns in filthy rags and smells of a pigsty. Before anything else, the father wanted to remind him who he was. Not the filthy, ashamed, outcast beggar that he thought he was, but the father's beloved child. And it was high time that he started looking the part again. It was time to put off the old filthy rags of his rebellious, sinful life and to put on the fine clothes of his elevated son's status. And this is God's word to us today. From the pen of the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church. In his providence and for such a time as this, God planned this text to be his word to us today. And this message, I believe, is both timely and needed for all of us. After laying out the truth of the gospel for us and reminding us of our status in Christ and who we are and who he is for the last couple of chapters, Paul now goes into exhortation. He tells us to take off the clothes of the old self, 
that man or woman that you have died to in Jesus Christ, and to put on instead the clothes of one who is raised to new life in Christ. He challenges us to live countercultural, otherworldly lives in the middle of a pagan culture. The first point in the sermon outline is that we should put off the old self. In this passage that we are covering today, Paul gives two lists of five items that believers need to put off, and one list of five contrasting replacement parts of clothing that we need to put on spiritually. He begins in verse 5 with a very strong directive. Putting off the old self involves killing the sins of sexual immorality and covetousness. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In the beginning of chapter 3, you'll remember last week that we saw that we are to seek the things of heaven, where Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and not the things on earth. If we belong to God in his kingdom, then we must pursue the things of God. Paul continues with another therefore here. Since that is true, then we must be on the offensive against the things of the flesh, our sin. We must not allow sexual immorality and greed to live within us. We must put them to death. As we engage with these sins, we are declaring the opposite of the message of this letter. We are saying that Jesus is not enough. His way is insufficient for me. I need more than he has to offer. God has declared that sex is to be enjoyed only in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. We've all heard the objections, and we could probably fill up pages with them. Lord, this husband or wife that you gave me isn't enough to satisfy me. I need more. Or, God, the struggle's too difficult, and after all, everyone else is doing it, so what's the big deal? It's just sex. God, I've waited long enough, and clearly you aren't following through on my plan for my life. And so I need to take matters into my own hands. Or maybe as long as no one gets hurt, then what's the big deal? Oh, here's one. How will I know if this person is compatible to be my spouse if I don't try things out first? We could go on and on. But we need to cut through all of that and simply ask the question, is God's good plan for sex and marriage, one man, one woman representing the two genders that he created, married for life, is that good enough or do we need more? If our answer is that we need more, then God have mercy upon us. Because Paul tells us immediately after that it is on this account that the wrath of God is coming. Our society has made its decision on this matter, and many claiming to be in the Christian community have joined the world's view on this. 
God's law doesn't matter anymore. And if you hold to the historic, orthodox, Christian view, then you're an antiquated, narrow-minded bigot, and the world's going to hate you for it. But Paul was writing to a people who were right in the middle of a world that had no use for Judeo-Christian point of view on sexuality. In fact, it really didn't exist outside of the Jewish community and the fledgling Christian church that was just beginning. It wasn't part of the culture or their history. Brothels, temple prostitutes, Roman bathhouses, you name it. It was available, celebrated, and encouraged. We shouldn't expect anything less from our own increasingly pagan culture either. Paul isn't addressing the culture at large. He's not telling the church to try and change the world's sexual ethic. Rather, he's exhorting the church to live in such a world in a counter-cultural way so that the witness of the gospel will come to bear in transforming hearts and lives. We can't change a culture without hearts and lives coming to Christ and being changed. He's challenging church members to set their minds and affections on the things of God and not to give in to the temptations that surround us. <clears throat> and when we are confronted with those temptations, Paul says we must kill them before they grab a hold of our hearts. Paul's statement that on account of these, the wrath of God is coming should shake us to our core. And even if this is not a significant area of struggle for you individually, you should shudder to consider the wrath of God that is being stored up against our society and our country. And even those that are claiming to be part of God's kingdom. How long will God allow us to raise our fist of defiance to the creator and demand that he see it our way? I fear that his wrath is already coming. As men and women, the book of Romans tells us, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, are given over to their dishonorable passions and debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The second list of five in verse eight concerns sins of anger and lying to one another. Reading in verse eight, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. We can do a lot of damage to one another and to ourselves when we engage in sexual sin with our bodies. And we can also do a lot of damage to one another and ourselves with our attitudes and words of anger and in lying to one another. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk tear down. They do not build up, ever. Anger is an ugly thing, and angry people are difficult to be around. The word translated anger here is a connotation of a slow-burning anger or an angry disposition, someone who has a default position of being angry. <clears throat> Paul continues with other words to describe this disposition. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. These behaviors are unacceptable in God's family and must be put away, taken off the filthy rags of the old man. Often when confronted, angry people will respond, well, I can't help it uh, that I have a temper. 
Maybe they'll blame their ethnicity or it's because they're passionate people. None of these are things that are legitimate excuses for God's people. Again, we expect to see this in the world, but we cannot abide it in the household of faith. There is no place for this kind of destructive behavior. We are bombarded with the normalizing of these actions in our culture, aren't we? Everywhere you look, people are angry, fighting with one another, yelling at one another. The sexual sins that permeate our society are everywhere. But we've been raised with Christ. We must not allow our minds to be converted to the world's way of thinking in these matters. If we do, then we will incur the results of these sins. Self-destruction and the wrath of God. We must be at war against them. There isn't a neutral position in this struggle. But Jesus is more than enough in the power of his spirit to put these sins to death and instead to seek his virtues. Paul continues in verse 9. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul again, like we saw last week, brings our attention back to the Garden of Eden before the fall. As we put on the new self and the Holy Spirit gives us the grace of sanctification, we begin being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator who created us in his image. And as we put the old man to death and put away those accompanying sins that have spiritually clothed us, we replace those garments with Jesus' robes of righteousness, displaying his holiness. In the ideal humanity of the garden and of the new creation, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, because Christ is all and in all. The church here is the refuge of the redeemed. Those who are being renewed day by day after the image of our creator. That's who we are. We, God's holy and beloved chosen ones, Paul calls us, are being restored to our full humanity as the walls and divisions that separate us in the flesh are obliterated in Christ. Race, nationality, religious hierarchy, social standing, socioeconomic distinctions have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. We are one in him, and he is our all in all. As God's kingdom on earth, we should reflect the reality of the coming kingdom of our consummation. And we don't have to only look back to the garden to see perfect humanity, because Jesus came to show us what it is to be fully human as the creator intended. He demonstrated righteous anger, but he never sinned against anyone. Jesus forgave those who wronged him. 
even as they were cruelly, unjustly murdering him on the cross. Remember his prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you want to see what it is to be fully human, don't look to the world. Look to the one who is restoring the garden, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who can enable us through the power of his spirit to kill our sin and to live as he lived. Paul tells the Colossians that in these you too once walked when you were living in them, speaking of the sinful patterns. But as new creatures in Christ, we aren't to behave this way anymore. These attitudes and actions are not compatible with seeking the things above where Christ is. They reflect instead the things of the flesh, the fallen, sinful world. And as members of that redeemed community, we must now clothe ourselves, reading in verse 12, with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This message of putting on the new clothes of the new man is for the people that have been redeemed by Christ. If you don't know Christ, if you're not in relationship with him, you have no hope of putting off the old man and of putting on the virtues of Christ. And so I would urge you to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, that you too might live as Jesus lived and being able to do that more and more until we finally reach our consummation in him. The second point in the outline is to put on the new self. Paul is eager to flesh out what this looks like practically. This text, put on, could, could very easily also be translated, clothe yourselves or dress yourselves. And it has with it this image of clothing. He refers to them, did you notice, as God's chosen ones, holy or set apart, and beloved. This language is found throughout the Old Testament in referring to God's covenant community, Israel. Paul is reinforcing their covenant relationship to God. And even though many of them are Gentile believers, they're no longer on the outside of the covenant community, for they are the spiritual children of Abraham, and just as much a part of the family as the Jewish believers. And Paul wanted to remind them of that. As Paul runs through these five virtues, this next list that believers should clothe themselves with, our minds should immediately go to the nature and character of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit that he provides through the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. Believers are to reflect their Savior, not the world around them. 
This reinforces the Christ-centered emphasis of the letter, and it brings the focus away from the worldly vices of the old self, redirecting us to the virtues of the new man in Christ. Grammatically, the next two directives that we see here in verse 13, bearing with and forgiving one another, they describe how the main verb, put on, or dress, is to be carried out. As we clothe ourselves, as we put on the new man, it is to be done in an attitude of bearing with one another and in forgiving one another. We are, in essence, to put up with one another's shortcomings, personality differences, and offenses. This is how we behave with one another. This is essential in maintaining a community of believers who are as diverse in function as the parts of the human body are. All with different gifts, all with different functions, united together in those differences for a singular purpose, which Paul will develop later in the letter. And because of these differences, one must also be ready and willing to forgive offenses from fellow believers. Offenses which will invariably happen due to the diversity that exists. We're not all the same, and we don't want to be the same. The parallel passage in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, emphasizes the same thought of bearing with one another. However, it's even more intertwined with the virtues that are mentioned. Listen to that. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. more expanded version of this in Ephesians also emphasizes the necessity of forgiving one another in verse 32, later in that chapter, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Throughout the scriptures, love is the supreme overarching virtue that encompasses all the others. Remember that when the Lord Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Additionally, Paul is likely indicating here in the words that he's using that love functions as an overgarment to the whole outfit, bringing it all together and completing it, perhaps like an overcoat or a shawl that wraps it all together. And this fits with the clothing imagery that he's using to point out the overall unifying power of love that this section concludes with. Living in unity with one another is a natural outflow of what Paul has challenged the Colossians with 
up to this point. And he culminates that with the all-encompassing virtue of love. Far from being a philosophical, legalistic, mystical, ascetic, works-oriented gospel that the false teachers were proclaiming. The genuine gospel that Paul preaches is spiritual, grace-filled, real, and practical, right where we live. His desire for them was that their hearts would be encouraged being knit together in love. And Paul didn't leave them on their own to figure this out, how to spiritually clothe themselves with these virtues. He emphasizes the one another aspects of being in community as the body of Christ. And he doesn't gloss over the challenges of being together. It's hard to live in community with people who don't think like you do. He addressed these challenges head on and challenged the believers to demonstrate these virtues by putting up with one another. And when the need arose, forgiving one another as Christ forgave them. There was no illusion that conflict wasn't going to happen or that it wasn't going to be in need for these things. It's assumed because of our fallen nature, because of our differences. But the call then is to bear with one another and to forgive one another as Christ forgave them. Every interaction with one another, both in speech and action, is to be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The community of faith, living life together in this way, keeping short accounts with one another, repenting to one another, forgiving one another. Folks, that's a powerful gospel force in this broken world. The message was clear, as Paul stated in chapter 2. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. The message to the Colossians found in these verses is both needed and immensely applicable for where St. Andrews finds itself today. We must be challenged, as the Colossians were, to find our all in all in Christ alone. And as we embrace him, and as we embrace his love within our church, we're going to be challenged to live with one another in a countercultural manner. This is not the way of the world. That lifestyle, that countercultural life of the church will be an unmistakable witness to the watching world of the good news of Jesus Christ. As we look to him alone and the passage of the old self fade into dust, we'll be drawn instead to live together in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, even as our Savior showed us how to live. Many of us are locked into living 
in surface relationships that require very little in the way of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Isn't that true? Instead of living boldly with one another in this manner, we retreat, avoiding conflict, and not working together for gospel advance as a result. Maybe it's just easier that way. Certainly not as messy. But how can we bear with one another and forgive one another and love one another if we avoid one another? Love and confrontation are not incompatible. In fact, to have one of those without the other is unchristian. To have love but not being willing to confront one another in our sin is not love. To have confrontation without the support of love is not of Christ. It is critical that we keep one another accountable as we strive together to put off the old and to put on the new. We need each other in this. This is not a negative. This is a positive. This is the way the Christian community is to live. If we're not watchful, towards one another and to ourselves. The old garments of sin and despair, sexual immorality, covetousness, anger, mistrust, suspicion, they'll, they'll find a foothold in our hearts and in our community of faith. And the love of Christ will be replaced by anxiety and chaos. So what do we do with God's word to us today in light of where we are? Clearly, there were issues that needed to be dealt with in the Colossian church. Otherwise, the letter wouldn't have been written. They needed to get back on point, to be reminded of who they were and what their mission was. If St. Andrews is to move forward in the power of the Spirit with its gospel ministry of seeing people reconciled to God and believers built up in the faith, then we must heed the word of God to us today. We must put away the sins that divide us. We must bear with one another and we must forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us. We must confront divisions and issues in the church and come together in common purpose and unity. And to say it again, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, we must put on love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And as the church moves forward on this path together, may the Lord be pleased as the opening prayer says, to fill you with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of him, fully pleasing to him, bearing gospel fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy.
Brothers and sisters, Jesus is more than enough for St. Andrew's to live in love. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we tremble before your word, but there is also great joy in knowing who we are and knowing that you can enable us and equip us to live out our lives reflecting the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And so, Father, would you help us today to not leave trembling? but to leave as those who have been bought with a price, those who are born again to a new hope, those who have been raised in Christ to live victorious lives over sin and in love to one another. Would you be pleased to melt hearts and mend relationships? Would you be pleased to bring joy into this place? Not artificial joy, Not a joy that is manufactured, but a joy that is born out of genuine concern and love for one another. We ask that you would do this work in the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.